The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Uh, before the thunderstorm starts in Washington, click! And we're live. It is Friday, August 13th, 2021, 5.02 p.m. And I want to tell you a story from the depths of the lore of Cheese Night. Um, it doesn't happen that often, but every now and then Cheese Night falls on Friday the 13th. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a spooky thing, you know, you get your... There's a lot of mythology about when that happens. Uh, a lot of it yeah. involves, you know, uh, inclusive legal positivism and, yeah, other, yeah. and other horrors. But there is... The night is dark and full of terrors. Uh, uh, but... Um, when inclu when in the inclusive legal positivists come out to play on Friday the 13th of Cheese Night, we call it Manchego Night. Um, and we always bring our Manchego to greet them. And that's how... get our Manchego. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And that's how we ward them off. We are not allowed to have fun anymore. But it is cheese night. Scott is not in Los An uh, Las Vegas, and Kate is in prison. We have a, it, we is in prison. <laughs> yeah, she's in the in the prison yard where they don't serve manchego. So we're going to start with the discussion of Kate's background. I'm yeah. wasting my 60 minutes of, of free phone time on you guys. Um, I like that's you know this is all I get for the entire week, <laughs> and so. <laughs> where, but, but, but seriously, where, where, where are you? I'm in the right co-working space, but because I got so maligned for my polka dots last time. Oh, so you haven't you haven't been caught up on this, Scott? Um, I uh, because I live in a studio apartment with my very who I with my partner who I love and love to work with, but I'm nonetheless getting no work done because like, right. <laughs> like, uh, we're just kind of like anyway. So like I got a co-working space because actually my office is so far from my house that it's like more costly to go to work every day and go to my office and in time <laughs> and in money than it is to spend $250 a month on this dedicated desk in a co-working space. Um, and they have free beer on tap and free cider and free kombucha and fruit and Free, I, this is actually Kate. 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 Yeah. Kate. What? Kate. Can I just say something? You're not at a co-working space. You're at what we call a bar. Except it's a free bar. It's even better. So there is another really important thing about today, uh, which is not beyond that. It's Manchego night. Yeah. And Scott, um, I really want to dedicate this uh, part of the introduction to you. Thank you. This is, if I'm not mistaken, the day that we were promised that Donald Trump would be back in power. Um, really? Yeah. 
Um, uh, I had it on good authority that come August 13th, <laughs> Donald Trump was going to be reinstated. Okay. And... Um, uh, was this actually a thing that happened? Did they say that this was going to happen? Yeah, and Donald yeah. Trump himself did not uh, resist this description. He, he said, you know, stay tuned for August. Uh, you know, people, <laughs> a lot of people are saying, well, it is now August 13th, and it's Manchego and I, we're hanging out, eating the Manchego, and Donald Trump is not back in power that I know of. And so, uh, Scott, I want to just get your thoughts on, uh, do we have a secret Donald Trump presidency that is now restarted as of today? Uh, and we just, he's so clever about it that we just haven't noticed. Um, that's a, that's a great question, Ben. And, um, this is actually uncomfortable for me because I can't actually say um, what's going on. Um, let me just simply say that it is, um, if there were a Donald Trump presidency that was happening now, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Um, so um, uh, let's now, just is that, say- Now, is that because of a methodological point as a philosopher that you can't, you, you, you there's a sort of, um, radical uncertainty that even if you feel like you know something you can't or is it because it would, would be classified well because i signed an nda um so that's uh that's uh that's why um i signed an nda um and also um i will be i also maybe this is a good time to talk about it but i signed an exclusive contract with rumble um where i will be um producing videos about maybe the Donald Trump, shadow Donald Trump presidency, um, because Rumble doesn't care whether something is true or not, I, I, I can put it on. Um, is Rumble like the new... Uh, get, getter, the new parlor. Yes, so the, the big news was that Glenn Greenwald um, was a mid-six-figure deal to, with Tulsi Gabar, Gabbard and a bunch of other, no. um, yeah, oh yeah, to, to uh, produce um, uh, videos for this new free speech platform that does that. They, they, you're not allowed. You see, from a content moderation perspective, it's really interesting because they claim that they don't care about the truth, but they won't let there to they, they won't let you um, say racist things. That's really so, it. Yeah. So 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 well, now. Yeah. Right. I know. Um, so the the the. How did the, I miss this? Well, because of the stupid paper by antitrust. But yeah. Right. Well, that that that's part of. See, that's that's a really interesting question for somebody like you, um, um, uh, Kate. Who you're both a scholar and you and you're you're writing about a moving target, and so there's a. <laughs> Yes. And so, no, it's like, like I just hired nine RAs, um, which is a little crazy. Um, and then I hired one of them to run the rest of them. So this is me managing. This is like I feel very good about this. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, but I've just been completely. But like the thing that I've kind of told them all is like I'm getting out of online speech. I don't want to keep writing about this. I want to start moving towards Airbnb. 
And then the same thing, like, like I just, someone contacted me this week with like this crazy set of documents and I'm just like, oh my God, this is going to be such a huge deal. And I was like, maybe I can just write one more thing. And then I'm like, is this like, is this like, I feel as if this has got to be, but like the, it's such a moving target, but it's also not a moving target, Scott, because it never changes. The the actual dynamics never change, right? So like, there's a new thing that throws something like rumble, throws it into like reporters call you and want to know. I don't even need to know what it is. I know all of the things that are going to happen with it. I know everything that's not going to work. And I just can be like off the top of my head. Right? Remember, was it David Plotz was on, Ben, when we had that conversation? And he we were talking about Substack. And I was explaining to him all of the ways that Substack was just like everything else, but also not like that and like how it was differentiated. And he was like, so like, what's your favorite Substack? I'm like, oh, I've never visited the website. (laughs) (laughs) Literally have never even typed it into my computer. Um, You just, you know, and he was like, but everything you said was perfectly accurate. I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I I would just tell you something as as there was a guy, a young, young professor and his name was Scott Shapiro and 25 years. (laughs) And 25 years ago, he said he was just going to write one article on inclusive legal positivism. <laughs> and now he has 75,000 uh, followers. And you know, all... yeah. that's the way I feel about Glenn Greenwald. It was like 20 <laughs> years ago, and I was just going to engage with him this once. <laughs> this was just once. Um, and I have to ask Bobby Chesney p- permission to tell, in celebration of his new gig, to tell our incredible Glenn Greenwald story. Um, but I am, uh, if Manchego Knight uh, permits, I will tell the, the Glenn Greenwald story to end all Glenn, Re- Glenn Greenwald stories. Uh, it takes place in a labor and delivery room. Um, and uh, it involves Auschwitz um, and content <laughs> moderation. <laughs> Genevieve, wait, were you on the thread today? What, you saw the, the email that With I sent. With the dog? Or, yeah. So, I mean, I, I sent on our text chat to everyone, um, I somehow got surfaced in my feed, uh, Glenn Greenwald's thread, like standing thread, that like is about all of the dogs that he has adopted because he runs like a oh, dog right. shelter. Kind of like twenty six. He has twenty six dogs in addition to the dog shelter. Like he owns those twenty six, and then like he also has adopted a number of children. So there's like this whole thing, and I sent like I sent this to like the chat, and I was like, "How am I supposed to keep hating this guy? He's adopted all these dogs." And Ben was like, "Cause he's a total asshole." <laughs> like, yeah, this, this is. <laughs> Yeah, Ben gave the response that like people normally give when you say, "Well, you know, Hitler was a vegetarian." Was, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god! Right. Ben, you're muted. You're muted, Ben. You're muted. We can't hear anything you're saying. You're still muted. I just want the record to reflect that I actually said none of this on in lieu of fun. I said it in a private oh, chat, yeah. and so uh, I am okay. actually as the host of that chat protected by section 230 that's true, <laughs> and, that's true. and these guys are all engaged in a HIPAA violation <laughs> oh, yeah. I, but you're right 
Do you think that we're not going to have law anymore because things like HIPAA are just actually slowly going to become so morphed over time that like, they're just like, like, I don't know, like what is going to happen with that? I know that courts will continue to be like not completely idiots about it, but like how, like what if the understanding of HIPAA becomes whatever Marjorie Taylor Greene said it was? What if that happens? Uh, I, 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 I I would I think it's already happened. Um, like, like literally, nobody knows anything about HIPAA. Um, and and to, I I had to, we we do a lot of HIPAA research in our clinic um, because we have to. You know, um it's really boring. It's so boring. Oh, I don't even so I don't boring. even, oh, I don't so even teach it in information privacy because it's so boring. <laughs> you, don't, you don't even teach it in information privacy. No. That, <laughs> There's a lot of other information privacy, Scott. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, under, I understand, but you do you mention it, right? No. <laughs> That's hardcore. I I respect that. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. man! Yeah. I, I have been forbidden to tell this story, so I will not. Okay. Um, uh, so I I have another really important uh, HIPAA question. No, I'm kidding. I have no important HIPAA questions. <laughs> so can, can I can I throw something out? A question? I, 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 so ordinarily I dread the beginning, like the end of the summer and the beginning of the school year, despite the fact that I love school and I love my job and I love teaching and I love all that, but I kind of dread it. This year I cannot wait for it. I cannot wait for the school year to start. I feel like the last yep. year and a half has been like just an absolute, um, just like the worst spring break ever. Um, and I just can't wait to get back. Um, do, and do, is that I, because you're, you're teaching with Lisa Page? Well, I am teaching with Lisa Page and that is very exciting. Um, uh, although she's really going to make me look like a complete and utter ignoramus. Um, she will yeah. be well prepared for this class. <laughs> I, I promise you, too. Like, you oh, I know. I know. We spent that, we've been spending the summer putting together the syllabus. Um, um, and she's, she's, she's fantastic. Uh, but I mean, I'm like really excited about starting to teach, um, even though it's a lot of work. Um, and I are you going to, are you going to have the Lisa Page puppet as a guest at class? Um, uh, no, because I could never do it justice. The, that, uh, um, wait, the, so why, so did, were you not teaching? I forget. Were you not teaching in the spring? I was not, I, I did, I did a clinic, which was a small, um, uh, you know, which is really face to face, but also it's the remoteness. Let oh, me, yes. uh, yeah, yeah. What about you, Genevieve? Are you, you're going, you're going, going, you're going I'm, I'm, I'm taking a break this semester. Oh, 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 yeah. right. You're taking, oh, oh, right. You're taking a break. Right, yeah. right. I gotcha. Um, and so. <laughs> we okay. can't say why for HIPAA reasons. Yes. <laughs> yes. You that was a HIPAA violation just then. <laughs> uh, but is it the structure that's appealing to you or just the the face to face interaction? Oh, the face to face thing. I mean, I just like absolutely so I I had mentioned this last week, but when I went to DEF CON and Black Hat, the idea of being in a room with other people was just so um it was so exhilarating, actually, I have to say. And one of the things, I don't know if we talked about this on the show, I can't remember, everything is kind of mixed up in my head, but 
the 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 oh i don't think it is actually because i think it was i spoke to my uh, another group about it but um the 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 trick was not so some of the talks that were given for example like matt tate's talk was um over video but it was videoed into a room of live people and it felt like a live um uh, talk because you were experiencing with live people and I, I i've spoken to other people about this and what they'll do is they'll if there's a Zoom talk, they'll get together with a bunch of people in a room and watch the Zoom talk. And it's like um, a regular talk. And I was just absolutely amazed on how exhilarated and refreshed I felt after um, after a day of in-person, uh, being with other people listening to talks. Um, whereas if it was Zoom, I would just put, I would just have to take a nap after noon. Can I ask a quick question? And I know these are like very binary definitions and no one's really one or the other, but would you consider yourself like an introvert or an extrovert? Oh, that's such, a good, that's such a good question. I think I am an introvert, except when I'm put in a, forced into a crowd in which I'm an extrovert. So I'm kind of curious. So you were you, Genevieve, you were in class last semester, right? But you were in all upper level classes. So I assume yeah. they were all over Zoom. Um, yes, all, all, all of mine were on, on the line. Yeah. Okay. So like I did the hybrid, like I had like six credits I was teaching that were over, over the internet. And then I had like the two hours twice a week of in-person teaching with masks, their masks, I'm masked in a, in a room with me being piped into another room. And I have to say, like, I just... I had an interview with somebody who was in my class and I didn't recognize her face like because I have no uh -huh. idea what she looks like and I felt like so bad. I have like 90 students or 70 students so I just like didn't see her name either just didn't ring a bell because um, she wasn't someone who like raised her hand all the time. And I'm just like oh my god like I I don't know I would get into it by the end but man every time I'm but I was never looking forward to it. Like, that's mm -hmm. like, I, I would have to say, like, I just felt like I would get up, kind of like work myself up for it. And I teach for two hours and like, you kind of get into it and you like turn on and like you yeah. get engaged and there's like an adrenaline rush a little bit, but like, I never looked forward to it. It was tech failures every Kate, day. And it Kate, was just like awful. Kate, Kate, so Kate were, were, were you in the class with them or just separate class? I was in the class and like I was oh. in a class and for I had to switch rooms every other every other class so like I was always in alternating rooms and like I'm mm. 30 feet from the nearest person and I just was screaming through my mask and like I was running out of breath like you know you're walking around oh. you can't walk around because they're following you with a video camera to pipe you into the other things which is oh. there. Yeah. and like I just kind of felt and like my PowerPoint wasn't projecting or like whatever. It just was like, I just felt like it was. And I mean, I would actually say the worst part of it was like, if I made a joke, no, I couldn't tell if anyone smiled. If I like kind of was, if people were confused, I like jokingly would be like, you have furrowed brow face. And it was like, all I could see was like this much, <laughs> but like, you know, but like, I was like, what are you, you know? And, you know, I, I just like, it was so hard. I, I just actually hated that. Some of the upper level courses that my classmates took were like that, and they said it was challenging. Uh, ben, are you are you going to be going into Brookings in September? 
I am. Um, uh, I am going to... It's complicated because we're uh, a fairly large group at this point and a f also somewhat far-flung group. Some we, Our daily editorial meeting has a participant in you know, Minnesota. Uh, so we actually have to be remote uh, just to be inclusive of our people. Um, which means that on any given day, uh, certain people have no particular incentive to be in in our home base. Um, so we we've developed a policy in which anybody's welcome to be at Brookings, subject to Brookings's rules, but there's no pressure, no questions asked if people want to stay remote. Um, I will be there because I'm. Uh, as much as you guys love my hammock and my, uh, <laughs> my Bob Mueller background, I'm kind of sick of this little cubicle. Um, and I, I'm eager to get back to my commute by Segway down to Brookings every day. So um, You commute by Segway? I am. I'm the this only DC. This is one of the things that Ben and I bonded over. Yeah. Oh, my, oh my God. You're, you're Job. Job? <laughs> From our rest of development? Yeah, from Arrested Development. I mean, that, yeah. That, yeah I Not mean, magic. <laughs> yeah, it, it, now, it, that, now that explains why you always correct me when I say that you do tricks. Um, that they're, you know. Um, it's an so. illusion, Michael. Uh, don't, get me, don't get me started on my Segway rant because okay. I, I have Wait, very I, strong feelings on this subject. He's definitely going to give his Segway rant, so all of us have only a few more seconds to get something <laughs> else in. I actually want to hear it. He, I've never uh, used I've never used a Segway before. Trust and me, I would you don't to. want to hear it, Genevieve. I've, well, I've never I've never used one either. He gets stuff so. thrown at him and yelled at him for riding a Segway around, and it's like really why. Jarring. Interestingly, not anymore. Um, no. I think yeah, like Washington has Washington has gotten used to my Segway, um, but um, uh, yeah, it, it, um, and also it seems much less eccentric now that the rest of the world has discovered. Scooters. Yeah. Um, that, so, that's what I have. Uh, yeah. I got mine like three. That's what Ben and I bonded over. It was like, I brought my scooter. Like I had, I have, I have, as mentioned, a terrible commute to St. John's. Um, and the closest I can get to St. John's on public transportation is about a mi 1.8 miles away from the actual campus, which means that like, I either have to just take an Uber or a cab for like the last part of it, or I have, which is like 30 bucks. Or I have to, uh, or I have to walk or like do whatever, and so run. Um, and so I got in a little electric scooter, and this was three years ago, before Lime and like all of these things were super big or had come to New York. And oh my God, people give me so much crap. And this was how I met. But and I, but it was like, but it was joyful, like getting on like a scooter and like oh, like like going like. Just like boom, boom, and you're just like kind of like <laughs> zipping along, and you're like, you're like, like the wind is in your hair, and like it was like fall, and the leaves were falling, and like everything was beautiful, and I was just like, you know, like going through all of these neighborhoods in Queens, and it was kind of cool, and like I just like loved it. I saw like all of this stuff going by that I didn't wouldn't have appreciated, and Ben was like, yeah, people throw their cans at me out the window <laughs> in That's DC, horrible. <laughs> like. It stopped though. Like it used to be that, like so, 
So I I think the the fact that the Segway is unambiguously safer, more robust, and less uh, less annoying uh, to other people than the proliferating scooters has actually caused people to stop bugging me about the Segway. Um, now it's like nobody minds anymore but it used to be people really minded the Segway and uh, you know I have a I have a trans kid and uh, everybody was surprised in the way that Kate was about this that people would lean out of their cars and shout obscenities at me and I told you know EJ this and EJ's like yeah welcome to being trans um, and just saw it as like people's response you know people's responses to end of the bell curve self-presentation is really, really hostile, whether it's, you know, your your dog shirt. Actually, people love the dog shirt, actually. What are you talking but, about? We, like, we, people threw eggs at us, remember, guys? The- <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, whether people really don't like, you know, your transport, people feel strongly about your transportation choices. Um, and, your, and your trans choices. Yeah, exactly. uh, wait, wait, wait. What is, um, may I ask, um, what do they say? Like, hey, hey, Segway man, are you, con- are you going from conversation to conversation? I mean, what, like, what, what can they say? <laughs> it's more I like, hey, motherfucker, stop. Or what? what the fuck are you doing, motherfucker? You know, that sort of highbrow high okay. critique. Do you say say calmly in response as you like, as you like, just key their car as you go by? Do you say, I'm "I'm riding my Segway? I'm actually usually so flustered by it because, you know, when somebody shouts at you like that, you usually think you're doing something wrong and you're like, oh my God, what's going on? Um, But the other thing about a Segway is the same thing that infuriates certain adults universally male between the ages of 17 and 30 um small children think you're a god um and that is a trade i will take any day of the week um uh and i've had lovely lovely experiences with you know like four-year-olds on the segways and you go in little circles around them and because the segways infinitely maneuverable and this is in a way that's not true of a of a scooter or something yeah. i mean they're they're really minutely precise in your ability to steer them and so you know you can go in a circle a tight circle around a small child and that's really exciting if you're four um and um and so i will take the like 17 year olds who don't have anybody to bully um, leaning out of a car and shouting an obscenity at you if I can also get the wide-eyed child who's like never going to forget the day that the Segway went it doesn't actually <laughs> remember the person but the Segway went in circles around him you know that's a big day for that kid. the hostility to joy is just so sad though I mean it, it's just it's depressing when you think about it especially because the demographic is so specific that and the juxtaposition of where ha- like where the happiness just emotes from it's it's crazy yeah, yeah. ben did so, you ever segue drunk yes um did you fall? i mean no 
you can, you actually have to work very hard to fall off a Segway, um, which is not scooters. Which I've is never not true. And I still fall off all the time. It, it is not to say that people don't do it. I mean, George W. Bush famously did it, giving rise to one of the great all-time Tom Tolls cartoons, which was uh, George W. Bush frame one, George W. Bush falling off the Segway and you know spazzing. Uh, frame two is Ari Fleischer briefing the press saying the goal was not to ride the Segway. <laughs> and then frame three is Ari Fleischer going, the goal was to liberate Iraq. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, um, the Segway, um, so look, uh, since I, I told you not to get me started on my Segway rant, I started riding a Segway for purely, purely rational reasons. Keep in mind that these um, uh, uh, scooter things didn't exist yet, um, much less had proliferated all over the place. Um, that um, uh, the electric bicycle really wasn't around yet. It was um, And so I wanted a way to get, and, and the red line from my house to Brookings uh, was at the low ebb, you know, it was like, you know, Jackson's, you know, uh, it was at the, it was at the lowest ebb of its power. It, you, you would fail you on a pretty regular basis. And uh, if you drive from my house to Brookings, it can take anywhere from 15 minutes to, you know, an hour, depending on traffic on Mass yeah. Ave. And by the right. way, if the if the vice president is going to be moved, which you know the the vice president's compound is is halfway between my house and Brookings, and you know if they move the vice president, they seal off Mass Ave, and that happens at an unexpected moment, so you can really get stuck. Um, so I needed a means of getting from my house to Brookings that, uh, and also it is routinely you know 95 to 100 degrees in Washington in the summer. And uh, uh, it's, you know, gets really hot and sticky here. So um, uh, I needed a way to get from my house to Brookings that was uh, pleasurable, that took a consistent amount of time, um, that uh, did not depend on either the red line or traffic on Mass Ave, that was safe. I could ride a bicycle, but riding a bicycle actually isn't uh, all that safe in the district. Safer now than when I did this, but there were no bike lanes then. And by the way, uh, that uh, I didn't arrive drenched in sweat, uh, and I do sweat profusely. Um, so um, I could think of exactly one transportation device that would serve that purpose, and it was the Segway. And by the way, it has no emissions. Um, and so I bought a Segway, a used Segway, from one of the Segway tour companies. And I have been commuting on it for, it's got to be five, six, seven years now. Wow. Um, it, and people think it is this highly eccentric thing, but it was for, it was for perfectly good reasons um, that were not like, like the joy of riding around on a Segway. That said, the joy of riding around on a Segway is no small thing. And if you've <laughs> never done it, you should. And sometimes I take the Segway out for a spin in like a 1920s kind of, oh, let's go for a drive sort of way. <laughs> and I love the Segway. That's awesome. Um, 
And so I um, am devastated that the Segway company has ceased production because eventually my Segway is going to die. Um, it has gone many thousands of miles, mo almost all getting me to and from Brookings. And by the way, it was a lifesaver during COVID because while I was not going to Brookings, my older kid, the trans kid, uh, needed a way to get from uh, his apartment to our house where he was spending most of the day, um, most days. And that was a three mile trek that he did every day by Segway. Yeah. And so, um, wow. uh, this is, uh, I would replace it with another Segway. Segways are really expensive. They run four to $5,000. Um, I would spend that money gleefully in a heartbeat again, uh, but uh, they have ceased production of this and I'm not sure uh, eventually it'll die and I guess I'll buy an electric bike at that point. But I think, um, you know, people, People think it is a pure, like a, a, a strange eccentricity, but then they get on these very dangerous scooters and, you know, which they ride without helmets, uh, which are actually pretty dangerous. Um, and uh, I've fallen uh, off mine like three times. And, and how many stitches have you gotten as a result of, of your scooter? None yet. It's yeah. All just chopping <laughs> cheese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, if she, right. if she walk, drives it in the kitchen, watch out. <laughs> I just, I think it's super fascinating. What do they call? I mean, they're calling it micro, micro, micro transportation, um, and I think that it is so, so interesting. It's also just so interesting to me because this is. There was recently. Did you anyone see the New York Times article about the people who have returned, who have not returned to New York and miss New York, and every time they see a movie or read something about New York, they like miss it and like kind of have like FOMO. Um, there was this great kind of article about this, and like they were like, yeah, I have a I have a house now, and my kids have a backyard to play in, and there's all this stuff. But oh my god, I can't get Chinese food. And I moved <laughs> to this place in Cincinnati. And this is actually the biggest thing for me. It's like I moved to a place in Cincinnati that I wanted to be walkable. And it was technically walkable. It was a mile and a half from like where I wanted to like go. But it was it turns out that it was through like medical facility like ex like setbacks and all of this kind of like crazy, like, you know, over train tracks and like kind of like this underneath underpasses. And I actually hate that about like, like that was my life growing up in the suburbs. You didn't, both of you grew up in cities. Scott and like Ben, you're shaking, no. you, know, you know, but you were no, like, no, oh, you no, were in no. New Jersey, that's right. Yeah, I, I, I grew up in, in, in Patterson, New Jersey, which was like the worst place to grow. I mean, I wouldn't say it's the worst, but I mean, there are worse places to grow up, but it, but it, but it was awful. I hated it. Darfur. Um, no, not Darfur. It was not Darfur. I mean, like, I, I mean, for like, if for for the first world, it was an awful yes, place I to grow up. Um, and 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 the thing is, is that like when I moved, I, when I so here the the crazy thing is, I live twenty minutes away from New York, and I had been to Manhattan twice in my life, and I I because I, I, my my the whole theory of my family is that New York is where we left. Um, and nobody would ever voluntarily go back there. And so I, I applied to three schools, three colleges when I was in high school. I applied to uh, Columbia, University of Pennsylvania, and Rutgers. Those were the three places I applied to. I don't know why I applied to them. And you went to Harvard. 
No, I didn't go. <laughs> I, I, I've never gotten into Harvard. Um, and um, I went to, I got into Columbia and I decided to go to Columbia and I didn't even visit Columbia before I decided to go there. And I went to Columbia and my first day there, I like, the, my parents dropped me off and all this stuff like that. And then I walked down to Broadway and I was like, holy shit, there's a world. Like, it was like the most incredible experience in my life. I was like, oh my God, you can do shit. There are things to do besides going to the Paramus Mall. And that was like, um, and so I can never, um, like, after I had exactly. I had exactly the opposite experience. So I grew up oh, going yeah. to elementary school in that neighborhood where I once <laughs> found a dead body on the way to school. Um, and I hated it very deeply. Um, and I did not learn to appreciate it until my parents moved to suburban Maryland when I was 13. Um, and I, there were all these kids I was around and none of them knew how to do anything. Like, they couldn't go anywhere by themselves, um, mm -hmm. and their parents wouldn't let them, even if they knew how to. Um, and they'd never found a dead body on the way to school, because they'd never gone to school by any means other than being driven there or by means of Taking getting a, a school bus. Um, and uh, I was really struck by how not capable they were. Um, and it wasn't like that I was unusual, it was just that I was a New York kid and, you know, or an urban kid and we knew how to do things. And the suburban kids, like, from 13 to 16, really didn't know how to do anything. And everything hinged on your ability to drive. What about um, Gen Genevieve? Genevieve? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. yeah, Genevieve. Oh, sorry. Did, like, did you? Um, I knew you grew up in. Was it Long Island? Yeah. Like, so it, I, right. But I identify so much with the um, family thing because my my grandfather was from Greenpoint. My grandmother was from Chelsea. And oh. when all their grandchildren started moving back into the city, me and my cousins, because there's like a bunch of us, um, they could not understand it. They're like, "Why? Like, why? Like, we <laughs> left. We left." Um, but no, the the dichotomy though between. <sighs> suburban kids and city kids is huge and the for me it was weird because like where I grew up was like kind of not super convenient to get anywhere but like because there were just so many of us that you you were forced to be more independent than perhaps your peers were so like when I got my first job it was a walkable thing I would walk to my first job and make sure like at 13 that like okay well there's no one to drive me. Gotta go. Like, see you guys. <laughs> but, it's, but it's just, that was just a product of having just so many siblings. And like, that would be completely unfair to be like, hey, mom, so <laughs> you can drop everything and take me to this job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my parents, yeah. I will say that the only thing that left over from the, the biggest thing left over from my growing up in the suburbs and like you said, the mall in Parasmus, like that, like kind of like resonates for me. Like, Eastview Mall was my mall and I still like I have a little go bag of like I don't know it's like band-aids and Tylenol and like a tampon and like whatever else you know like if I move from purse to purse but I always carry like a quarter in it <laughs> like just in case I have to use the payphone to call my mom to pick me up from the mall 
Because <laughs> that's yeah. literally what would happen. My mom would give me a quarter and be like, call me when you want to get picked up. And I would have to like find a payphone and like call. Anyways, I don't even think that you can, I don't know, whatever. But like, that's but just like this residue of like. The cell phone thing changed everything too. Yeah. Like, cause that wasn't a thing at all until I think I was in like high school. And so then just as like you watch people and they get younger and younger, they're getting cell phones earlier and earlier and it completely changes the dynamic too. What, type, what age did you guys let your kids get cell phones? Oh, um, uh, that, that, that's like the hardest fucking question there is in parenting. That, I, that, I that, feel like it is. Yeah, I yeah. No, think it, that pe- like, I know that people joke, but like I think it completely is. Oh, yeah, because it's like on the one hand, it's the best goddamn toy there is. And like, it just will really absorb them. On the other hand, it's like at, after that point, they don't need you, you know, um, um, and it, and also there's the distract, I mean, there's all the things that people talk about. I mean, it, there is, you know, so there, there is a kind of truth to the whole, these fucking cell phones and what they're, they're killing, they're ruining kids. Um, it's kind of, kind of true. Yeah. I don't answer that question. Even asking it is a HIPAA violation. Richard <laughs> Wattenbarger, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ben, for pointing that out. Um, well, I, 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 two questions, actually. Uh, first, Scott, how's the guitar? <gasps> I, I, so I didn't want to talk about this because it's because it's it's boring. It's a HIPAA violation. It was a HIPAA violation, right? But oh. After three years of, of oh, no, two and a half years, I finally have control over my fingers. Um, the first time it's ever happened in my life, I finally, I don't know, is this like, you got, you, you, uh, I know Ben and, and uh, Richard, uh, I don't know who else plays instruments here, but I feel like I did not have control over my fingers until like last week. And now it's like a completely um, uh, new world for what me. What do you mean uh, by that? I don't even understand. Well, it's your, like your, your, your nervous ahead. system. Yeah, you, you know, as you get older, your nervous system isn't going to take. Uh, you know, it's not going to do very intricate tasks very um, very easily. It takes a lot more training. I, I mean, the thing is, like for example, so this was the summer of the pinky. Did I ever talk about this? This was the summer of the pinky, uh, and uh, I, the whole summer I wanted to get my pinky. Um, uh, in control um and for some reason i don't know last week all of a sudden all my fingers like like the neural pathways were established and to me it's the most extremely exciting thing and all i think about and i i I do this constantly i just i'm very excited so thank you thank you so here's your here's your assignment scott go to the bronx zoo and go to the chimpanzee pen and go Wait, can they not? Really? What? They cannot do this. Gorillas and chimps can do this, but they do not have fully opposable thumbs. Humans are the only animals who have useful control over their pinkies. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. so you can always lord that over your great ape friends. I had a friend and with six fingers, and, and they'll get very upset if you show them this and you know point out to them 
you know, Mr. No, Gorilla, I, you, you, you have like, many in, skills. In, I can't knuckle walk, but you can't do this. So it's like in America, like uh, this is the finger, the bird in America, right? This is the thing in Europe, right? This is the bird in Europe. But in and, Gorilla. And in Gorilla, it's this. It's this. Like, yeah. it's like, Fuck you, Gorilla. It's this. <laughs> this is I... giving them the bird. Can I ask really quickly to Richard and Scott, like, so when you're saying you have control of your fingers, would, would you say that it's kind of like when you get to a point in like learning a language where you stop automatically translating it in your head and like, th like thinking about the phrase in English and then translating it to another thing and then putting it, it's like, it just kind of comes out. Like, no, it's actually, it's for, like? for me, it's the opposite. It's like, Somehow, like my like when I wanted my pinky to move, I would think move pinky, and somehow the pinky would move sometimes. But now, when I think move pinky, I can actually feel it move. I can feel me moving it. Um, I know. Are I, you by okay? the way, many times Scott is describing uh, an eccentricity on Scott's part. This is not one of them. Oh, I know. Okay. Uh, uh, the so, I, I, you know, for me, it's because I'm not a, a string player or a guitar player, um, uh, these are not manual dexterity things, but um, the ability to control when you play brass, the ability to control uh, the combination of your lips, um, which is called embouchure, uh, is that requires a, you know, lip to brain connection that you know if you do it wrong you get the wrong note let alone the the wrong tone and mood of the of, of the note um and those are you know there's things that require extreme dexterity particularly of very small muscles and you know the the dexterity you're using to play the guitar um uh is a, is a lot of micro movements of very, very small muscles and your brain has to control those. Yeah, I, 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 the, the weird thing is, is that um, you, it's like, with, it, it, I, I assume it's the thing with the lips, like your brain, your brain did not, like you, you I have not needed to control my pinky carefully <laughs> up until now. <laughs> Um, and so the fact that all of a sudden I like, I can think about my pinky and move it like is, is a, it's very exciting. And I realize how boring this sounds to, to everyone else, but it's truly exciting to me. Actually, the, 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 pinky, the, pinky that was, is, the pinky thing is actually pretty, that's pretty important because it's really one of the hardest, uh, fingers to get, um, it's the hardest one to get control of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Richard, that was probably more of an answer than you were expecting to your guitar question. Uh, but uh, what an answer! <laughs> yeah, just be polite, Scott, next time and say it's going well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yes. Thank, thank, thank you, Richard, for asking that question. Do you have an hour? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. What's your yeah, second question? Oh, the, the second question. Okay, so the serious question. I, you know, I've watched, um, I've been noticing, uh, like on, on TV and other places, all these stories that come up about uh, these people, these anti-vaxxers who contract COVID, they're mortally ill, um, and they say they still don't have any regrets about 
not taking the vaccine and they wouldn't take it if they had to do it over again. And so I see these stories out there and um, and I've seen a number of them. And I and I, you know, this is the sort of thing that's like anecdote, not data. And but it does really magnify that sort of thing in, you know, in people's minds. Um, and so I my, what I'm curious about is why uh, why don't major journalistic organizations actually, uh, you know, bring up data, you know, get in, bring in more data journalism to contextualize these kind of things? Is it, uh, you know, they don't, it doesn't sell or what? What do you mean? Like the question of like whether or not like bringing, I don't understand, like you, like well, okay. these stories Here's of, why they're not doing more with those stories? Here's another example. It's like the, the, the case where you have people who are in a city and you know, they're all afraid of crime. They hear all these stories uh, about crime out there. And yet we have the data out there that says, says well, in fact, uh, crime has gone down quite a bit since the 1990s. Yet these stories get, um, you know, they get reported without these uh, larger contexts that would, uh, would make sense of of them, and I'm wondering why. You know what's going on there. Um, to that kind of the to the crime point, I think that one of the things that has happened um, in not just the COVID stuff, but in general, and like the crime thing, like one of the things that's happened in particular with social media is because there is an amplification process for like a story that gets a lot of attention that can be kind of um, disambiguated from needing. A reporter to pick it up or a reporter to do hard work on it or kind of flesh it out as like more than just an anecdotal story um that like anecdotal stories surface more for us and i think that then they take up kind of more time and attention in our minds um and i think right now it's really hard to get concrete data on what's happening with people with covid as journalists i don't even think like necessarily the cdc has it and i think that the cdc is making some to be frank, some very like kind of like interesting choices or like kind of like controlled choices in the types of data that they release because they don't want it to have kind of certain types of effects on decision-making effects on how people are deciding to get vaccinated or not get vaccinated or whatever else. Um, but like when I see any of those, I don't know, you guys can all speak for this too, but like when I see any of those anecdotal stories, I really try to tell myself that it's just anecdotal and not pay any attention to it. Like, and that's like, I think the best you can do as a, like as a consumer of news at right now with all of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just a couple small thoughts on this. First of all, uh, this is a question I think uniquely badly suited to data journalism. We know quite a lot about public opinion uh, and COVID. So that aspect of data journalism is being pretty well covered. And the question of how representative it is to be in an ICU uh, choking to death and think that your decision not to take the vaccine was a rational one that you would redo, you know, sort of proud to die on the side of the virus. Um, uh, I don't think that's like we're not going to get access to the ICUs to go around and interview people like that, nor frankly would that be they would be especially reliable narrators since 
uh, I think probably a lot of them uh, are telling themselves a story that uh, may not reflect what they would do if they could uh, rewind the tape. Um, there, there was a really interesting um, article in The Atlantic written by a Dartmouth um, a political scientist, and I forget her name, uh, apologies to the author, but what she wrote was um, about how the reason why a lot of these people in the ICU um, will say, I wouldn't take um, I, I wouldn't take the vaccine even having gotten COVID and all that stuff, is that this is the way that people deal with con with being conned. Like, you don't want to be, you don't want to admit that you were a mark. And so I, I think so many of these stories uh, these anecdotal stories are reflecting that sense of being duped. And not I think that's exactly it. right. And there's a wonderful New Yorker story about this from about 10 years ago, uh, answering the question, who is the guy who actually gets nailed by the Nigerian email scam? And uh, they found him. And, uh -huh. you know, it ruined his life. He ended up in prison because he ended up stealing money to give to the Nigerian email scammers. Uh, and he, you know, still believes that the big payout is just, you know, one $10,000 wire transfer away. And is that because he really still believes it? Or is that because asking, you know, be because admitting that your remark is yeah. really hard. Paula, the floor is yours. Okay, so Kate made this great point on Twitter about a week ago on <laughs> her eyes, just like <laughs> on descriptively neutral terms that like people infuse with their own meanings. And one term that came to mind for me was elitism, which I think falls into that category, but obviously has a really bad slur-like connotation. And I was wondering descriptively neutral. Well, I, but, I was yes. wondering, I was going to ask if you agree whether or not the denotation is different than the connotation, but also if you think it adds any value to the legal field, because I'll be honest, I remember when I was applying to law school and on a quite reliable news outlet on an article I read, someone like a, a quote unquote reliable source says, a lawyer was not worth their salt if they did not go to HYS, which at the time was a really big blow to me. Um, when I actually thought that was a believable thing. Um, but even though that's so wild and like not even have any truth to it, I mean, when I look at like US news rankings, it's not false or untrue to say that there is a correlation with US news and LSAT scores, GPAs, bar passage, or I don't like federal clerkships. Um, so I want to know- Well, the, qu the question is what's cause and what's effect there. Exactly. Um, you know, I would just like to start the with to the extent that we're talking about law schools. Let's observe that the world of law schools and legal practice long predated U.S. news by uh, several hundred years, and actually predated law schools by uh, you know the the Harvard Law School was founded in 1870, I believe, uh, maybe maybe a little later. That's the first law school in the country. The legal profession is a lot older than that, um, yeah. and um, and so the you know the notion that uh, that you need rankings is actually very recent and very silly. 
Um, or uh, any elitism, not even just rankings. Well, I want I want to distinguish. I want to distinguish between elitism and uh, the pejorative use of the term elitism. Um, I think that there is there are good and bad elitisms. There's the elitism that says, hey, I'm not picky about how you got to be one of the people who is absolutely great at what you do. But I would rather watch Simone Biles than watch other non-elite gymnasts. Just my preference, you know. I would rather read Shakespeare than read, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, any of his contemporaries who are less good. Now that is elitism in the sense that you're saying, I wanna, I wanna expose myself to the best the world has to, has to offer, and to the extent that I uh, want to uh, engage, I want to engage with people who are really, really good at what they do, who are really interesting at what they do. The problem with elitism arises when you either have contempt for people who are not in that elite, how, or when you start using proxies for elitism or for the actual elite that are based on status markers that in fact have no intrinsic value of their own. So your, your example of the Harvard Law School um, is a very good one. The Harvard Law School, where I have been known to teach, is a wonderful place to get a legal education and it produces many perfectly ordinary non-elite people every year. Um, and the only definition by which they are elite is if you say the definition of the elite is having gone to the Harvard Law School, <laughs> right? There's kind of reverse engineering. Um, it's a very large place. It produces a lot of people, some of whom are part of what we would understand to be a legal elite, and the vast majority of whom are not. Um, I think if you understand elitism that way, um, there's nothing really objectionable about it. If you understand it as a series of, of prestige markers, uh, then it becomes very ugly very quickly. Um, I think you read, I, so the descriptively neutral phrase that I said, just for what it's worth, was um, I said... I just realized that the place isn't the same without you. Like that phrase, like, oh, such and such is just not the same without you, is actually a descriptively neutral phrase. Even though we tend to actually, like, because, and what I mean by that is, like, look at the phrase. The phrase means, like, this isn't the same. That doesn't mean that it's better or, wor better or worse. It just means that it's not the same. And so that was, like, the descriptively neutral kind of thing that I described. And that, like, what I meant by that was just like, there's lots of things. Elitism in my mind is not one of those things. Elitism is speaking about a decision about what is elite. And even if you're talking about best and better, elite has like some type of precise kind of, especially ism on it, has some type of precise kind of like pejorative nature to it or like slightly judgmental nature to it. That is putting something descriptively above, but it's not neutral. It's putting something either descriptively or normatively, however you want to call it. Like, cause of course your description could be normative, um, but like above something else. 
Um, and so to your point though, um, I think it's a broader point, Paula, which is just that man, like, don't fucking read the trolls. Stop reading the, don't be, I don't know where you're reading this stuff, but like, what, like in yeah. what universe would you think that Harvard, yeah, I didn't go to Harvard, Yale or Stanford. Like, I mean, for, I mean, not for, for law school and like, uh, like a ton of people, I mean, like, there's just like, these things are not, there's always going to be haters. There's always going to be people that say that type of thing. Just try to take all yeah. of that with a very grain, big grain of salt. At, as somebody who teaches at Yale Law School, can I just say that's a, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I mean, it's really a stupid thing to say. Um, yeah, and if- I, I, not, not that they said Harvard as opposed to Yale. I just mean that, like, I, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Like, you know, um, how good you are as a lawyer has has a very little to do with where you went to school. I think we could. Right. We, oh, go ahead, Ben. We, we've got Mateo, oh, yeah, who's got a couple right. questions, and then we've got um, a question, a really important question to close with from the Reverend Dr. Hillary Livingston, who I have failed to bring on screen through uh, the grouchiness of Crowdcast. Uh, so, Mateo, uh, pose your questions. We will go through them, and then I will read uh, Hillary's very important question. Great. Uh, thanks, Ben. Um, so my first question is just for whoever wants to take it. I'm curious to hear a story about the smartest person you've ever met. Um, here and then just hang on for the one later. Yeah. Uh, Scott, you're shaking your head in wonder, which means you should probably go first on this. I just hate people talking about me. So. Um... Kate. Uh, um, Ada Palmer, taking it before anyone else can take it. Uh, she's pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Gen Genevieve? I don't know who's the smartest person I've ever met. And, and I know that so sounds... many different types of smart. Exactly. Because like, there's like an emotional intelligence, like an actual just like intelligence intelligence. There's the people who can translate the super smart thing into something that's like digestible for the majority of people, which I think is like an incredible skill. And so I, I don't know. Um, I'm going to think about this and maybe on the next cheese night I'll have a story. <laughs> So I have an answer to this that is about somebody who did not impress me at all and who um, uh, I, uh, when I found out what she was capable of, I, um, I learned to stop uh, thinking I could figure out uh, what, uh, who was smart and interesting and who wasn't. So when I was in college, um, I was asked on a date by a uh, young woman with bright purple hair um, uh, who seemed very nice and, uh, and she uh, seemed interested in some stuff I had said in a class and so we went out uh, and had an extremely awkward uh, single date in which I, um, we had absolutely nothing to talk about and uh, it was really awkward and I was very, very unimpressed with her. And um, uh, uh, a number of years later, when her hair was no longer purple, Myla Goldberg published a, uh, a very celebrated novel called Bee Season, 
which got all kinds of wonderful reviews and and I, I read it because I was uh, like wow you know how could she have written something that she she didn't seem very impressive um, and um, uh, and so I read it and it's actually a quite a wonderful novel um, and I thought huh um, this whole thing of thinking you've got somebody pegged um, by having a conversation with them and saying, oh, this person's smart and this person's uh, not smart or not interesting, totally overrated. Um, and if you had asked me after our date uh, uh, whether Myla Goldberg was going to uh, write B season, I would have uh, giggled or something. And uh, sh the joke was on me because uh, she's actually a super impressive human being. Uh, who's done a bunch of interesting stuff, and uh, I don't know her at all because uh, we we've never been in touch. Because I thought she was really unimpressive when we <laughs> met at Oberlin, and so I want to urge you, Matteo, to um, to ask the inverse of your question, not like who's blowing uh, uh, my socks off and who are you, who am I really impressed by, but who's the still waters run deep person who you're not noticing, who's not like blowing you away as the most impressive person in the room, who's actually going to do something uh, super interesting. You just, they just haven't shown those particular cards yet. And Myla Goldberg, if, uh, 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 if you ever stumble upon In Lieu of Fun and happen to hear this, I thought B Season was a great book and I apologize for thinking you were uh, ordinary and uninteresting when we met when we were like 19. Um, Matteo, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you just also have to be careful of the people that like have their reputation of being really smart because they can also be really disappointing. Yeah, it's so true. Oh, that's almost always true. Saul <laughs> Lovemore, who was the dean at, um, at uh, University of Chicago Law School, he had a whole theory, he had a whole talk about why is it that every time you go to a talk to hear somebody who you love their work and think they're so smart, why they always disappoint you? Um, and and the, the answer he came up with, one, one of the reasons is, is because you read their best work, but what you hear is their average work. <laughs> so that's, that, that, that happens. That's a good Mucho wisdom that. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Matteo, your other question. All right, my other question, and in many ways the more important one, is what's happening eight episodes from now on I Love 500? Oh, yeah. Uh, deserving oh, of a lot a, of stuff. That's a great question. We have to figure that out. I know. I will. I, can we just I think do it's it? Gonna, it, it's going to be cheese night, obviously. Yeah. Um, well, but obviously, I think we're going to have... Um, it's gonna. We're gonna have to figure it all out because it's. Could we, could, we, could we talk about this just very quickly, just to say, can we get, and I'll help. Obviously, because this will be big. But could we get as many people as who've been a guest to come on, just say hi, or we, is that would would that be? We did, well, we did that. Possible? I think with the hundredth episode. And, um, one, and one year we tried to do it. Yeah, and it's hard because uh, a lot of the people... Crowdcast only lets you have six people on at a time. Right. Um, but we can definitely do... We could do, like... Um, uh, I don't know. We could do something. We haven't figured it out yet, Mateo. 
Okay, we got to answer uh, uh, Hillary Livingston's question right. because it's an important one. Is skier cheese or yogurt? Please discuss. Yogurt. KK? Yes, it's yogurt. There's a difference between yogurt and... Yogurt is not a type of cheese. Scott? I mean, yes, obviously. Not what Kate said and what Genevieve said. It's yogurt, and also yogurt is not a type of cheese because it's fucking called cheese nut, not yogurt night. Oh my god, yes. That is okay. the best answer. Um, <laughs> I also want to add that I did something with Skier the other day that I was really, really proud of, which was I took some raspberry Skier and poured it into my ice cream uh, uh, um batter that I was making to pour into my ice cream mix um, mixer and I now have half uh, a blackberry ice cream from the blackberries that, that grow at the cabin and half uh, frozen skier and it, delicious, it is fucking great I'm so um, jealous and so it might not be cheese it might not be yogurt night but skier tonight has a special place in my heart sounds great I think we're going to leave it there. Kate yeah. is going to be released from prison uh, on Sunday, and we will be back on Monday. I don't think we've have we planned the show at all for next week. Can, can I, I can I can I can I say something before we just planning the show? We should get somebody on Afghanistan because that's yeah we should yeah that's a that's a, I, I would love to I would love to have somebody on Afghanistan. All right, tomorrow, uh, next week, we will have somebody on Afghanistan, and uh, that's probably all we're going to know. Uh, that'll be 70 hours and uh, 50. 50 minutes from now. And until then, Genevieve? We don't have fun anymore, but we have skier ice cream. <laughs> Some of us. We do. Some of us. You're such a jerk. But <laughs> I, I mean, I'll make you some, but I can't, okay. like, if I mail it to you, it's going to be mush by the time it gets there. <laughs> no, thank you. Bye, guys. Yeah, Bye. Bye.